right, this is Giovanni Guerrero with the Save the Planet podcast. So welcome, everyone. I'm glad you're able to join us today. Today, I'm interviewing an old friend of mine. I won't tell you how long, because you will not actually know what my real age is. Anyway, uh, a friend of mine, his name is Chris Davidson. He is a civil engineer, and basically, he has helping to deal with climate change on the front lines of engineering, which you don't think that would be a big deal, but it is. He recently came out with an article about water resilience and how we need to plan that for climate change. And I'm very happy to have him on the show. And everyone giving you a warm welcome for Mr. Chris Davidson. Thank you, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, so the first thing is, is that Chris, I, it's been a couple of years that we haven't uh, really spoken. I'd like to give me a quick idea of like, what are the exciting things you're doing right now with Golder and how this is applying to climate change and how you now have to start planning for it. So just a quick background of what you've been doing and you know how this is generally a general overview of how this has been affecting the world. So Chris, what can you then tell us about what you've been doing and how this discovery really of yours has led you to write this article and kind of you know ring the bell about water resilience. How did you, what was your journey to, to get to this point? So when I started working, I usually worked with a lot of development projects. So specifically doing stormwater management, uh, doing housing developments, doing mine sites, doing quarries. Uh -huh. And at one point we were developing a tool for mining client. They had a big tailing pond, um, which is essentially a reservoir that they need to have a certain level of water in. So they had to keep it at a certain level minimum. And their problem was they didn't know if in future they should build a building this reservoir dam higher or, or lower, or if this was going to be an issue for them, where they should be spending their money. So they asked us about it and I didn't know, I didn't have an answer on the climate change side of things. So Golder happens to have some climate scientists there. So I went to them and said, what information can you give me on climate change? They said, actually, you know, it's our, our main business plan. So they sat me down and they went through some of the numbers they could provide. And we ended up building a tool for the client that they could model, not just the next 10 years or next 15 years, but the next 100 years, what the climate might look like under different scenarios and how that might affect this big reservoir that they have. And through that, through running all these different climate scenarios, they could get an idea of where they should be spending their money. If, for instance, if the dam was going to overtop maybe twice as often or three times as often in the future, they might have to spend a million dollars building that dam higher. Or if the dam isn't going to overtop that much more, if it's not going to be that much more of a problem for them under climate change, maybe they can spend that money elsewhere. Maybe it's a water supply question. Maybe they need more water in the dam. It's not a question of overtopping, but just not having enough water. So in that case, they might want to spend that million dollars, that million dollars somewhere else. So the tool really helped them plan some of the plan, some of the some of the infrastructure spending that they have. And as we developed this tool for them, we realized there was a lot of different clients that would also really benefit from this kind of climate change information. So for instance, farmers with large water taking permits have to know what the water situation is going to be in 10 years and 50 years. 
And it's especially important to them if they're going to be selling their land anytime soon or passing that farm on to the next generation. Or for instance, a city, a city planner might really need to know what sources of water they need to have available to them as the city gets bigger, if they're going to be under more water crunch, if they need to have more lakes and streams to be available for the water, or if they need more groundwater wells to take water from. And so this kind of information is not necessarily really out there in the public domain, not really known. And getting it out there and getting it out there in a way that people can understand has proved to be a really big part of the work that I do now, just because it's something people really feel like they need to know this planning, not just the 15 years, 20 years ahead, but planning to 2100 and beyond. It, it is really important to them to know now because ultimately what we build now will probably be still be there in 2100. So it's important for them to be able to plan ahead. I remember this was not clearly part of our, any of our design principles as we were going forward. No. So if, if I may get a timeline, Chris, how long have you been working on this or how long have you, you've had um, climate change scientists, Eric Golder, to help you I with think this? the climate change scientist has been she's been there at least as long as ever the ones that i talked to have been at least as long as i have so we're talking about 15 years now so originally they were providing i think more of the uh current climate information but specifically actually her role on this was she, she her background was climate change and so at the time when they hired her they intended to build this this group up around that kind of service and in the past 15 years, it's really taken off for them. So basically, you know, what we learned in school in the early 2000s really doesn't apply anymore. And we actually have to, as engineers, we actually have to now up our game basically because of of climate change and yeah. how it's drastically affecting us, especially for Absol cities. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm, as part of what I do at Golder, actually, we have a course at U of T we teach. So every week, a different person, a different engineer goes in and teaches a master's course on permitting and environmental science. And I do the part that talks about surface water that talks about a lot of the, the stormwater engineering. And I've got several slides in there about climate change saying, you know, we've talked about all this stuff previously in the course, but basically all this is going to change once we sort of get a better handle on how climate change affects our permitting and our regulations. So with older engineers and such, are they, are the, are the older generation also taking advantage of these types of courses like that you've seen? Because, you know, there's, in a lot of engineering, there's a lot of rules of thumb and everything that, you know, as, as we learned that uh, we're based on 20, even 50 years in the past, and now we have to plan for the future. And if those rules aren't working or they're changing, then that's a, a serious education issue. We need not just for the generation coming up, for the current generation that is making the decisions on all of these. So um, your article basically talked about water resilience. Can you mm -hmm. please explain to me a bit more about what you mean what you mean by that so i understand how that works with the storm drains and planning for the water but in terms of water resilience can you can you expand on that so resilience is about recovering quickly from a failure you can build something better and better to resist more and more extreme events but eventually it's probably better to have something just let it fail and then have a good plan to recover from that so for example, you could buy like a light bulb and it'd be guaranteed to last for a thousand years. 
but it's easier to buy one that's like 99% reliable and, and recyclable, obviously, and then have a box of replacement light bulbs available to switch it out. So water, water resilience is the same idea, but instead of dealing with light bulbs, you're dealing with either too much water, like a flood situation, or too little water, so a water supply situation. Um, a good example I've always given people is imagine if, like a footpath by the river, and that push, footpath maybe gets washed out by a flood every 10 years or so. And you can build like a million dollar berm or a dam or something to protect that footpath, but ultimately it's probably cheaper just to have you know, the materials on the hand and have a good plan to replace that footpath every so often. And that's what the resilience part of it is. It's not necessarily building something that's going to resist whatever climate change might bring, but having a plan to fix any damage that's going to occur. Um, what are some common, I guess, water resilience strategies that you've seen that cities encounter? And has, have they generally been in Canada, the United States, other continents? What's been the main focus of, of this particular climate action or water resilience that you've been working on? So what we do for a lot of clients is we provide them with workshops that essentially say, this is what, for where you're looking, where you are, this is the climate change effects we're expecting for your area. So temperature, change in snowmelt, uh, change in length of the winter, maybe increase or decrease even in some of those really extreme storm events. And then what we do is we look at all their infrastructure and we use that list and we say, okay, what's the effect of, that we've now highlighted on that infrastructure? And sometimes it's actually good. I mean, if you have a client, for instance, that has a bunch of snow plows and your winter is getting shorter, it means you don't have to worry. It's like you don't have to replace all those snow plows in the future because probably you won't need them all. Right. But in some cases it's bad. Sometimes if you have a dam or something and you're expecting bigger floods, you'll have to build that dam higher. So once you've identified the changes and once you've identified what the effects might be on your, on your system, that's when you have to start planning. And that's what we've done. Again, in these workshops with our clients, we've gone through what the effects are they're expecting and said, okay, well, this, for instance, this is something you can replace every time it fails. So you don't have to worry about, you, you can be resilient. You don't have to worry about fixing it. Or you don't have to worry about building it up so that it can resist to this climate change. But in this situation, as other case, maybe for instance, again, we keep going back to the dam, uh, the dam you're going to have to build up higher. You're going to have to understand that it is something the worst case scenario is changing for you and you have to build this new worst case scenario. So it's all about really working with the clients almost one-on-one -on -one basis and going through all the effects that they might see on their site and figuring out what they need to focus on. And if there is something they have a specific concern about, so uh, like something like a dam or a reservoir or a water supply system that they know they have to adapt it's about going into the really the detailed climate change projections from the models and saying, okay, worst case scenario, we expect that there'd be a month less rain or something during the summer. You have to spend several million dollars to build this dam higher. Um, so it's really, yeah, the, what we've done again with clients is really focus in on what the, what's keeping them up at night, especially. And to map out what the projections are saying is going to happen to that particular piece of infrastructure. Since you've had your clients sign for there for 15 years, have they been have they gone back and validated their projection models to to improve its accuracy? The models themselves are actually very good for the next couple of years, I'd say. 
Um, there, when you look at some of the projections, there's a, they validate them based on the historical information going back to 1950. And so there's a pretty tight grouping between all the different models, maybe for the next 10 years or so. But after that, that's when you start hitting some of that uncertainty. Um, and uncertainty is a very different problem when you compare it to risk, which is what engineers usually deal with. Yeah. Because we don't know which direction. Like we want to reduce it as much as possible. <laughs> yes. I mean, we don't know what people are going to be doing in the future. There was no way to predict uh, COVID. And going back to, I mean, we're projecting to 2100. You look back to the 1930s and you're like, how would someone in the 1930s say what was going to be happening now? So that uncertainty is how people are going to be working ahead. I mean, usually when we run these models, we run three scenarios. We run a scenario where people start reducing the greenhouse gas reductions or emission, right. keep them more or less the same, or start increasing them. And that's when you start seeing some of that, that like deviation is that essentially that uncertainty in the model. You get one model with three scenarios producing very three different three very different results, and the uncertainty is the distance between them. So for the moment, at where we are now, we have a pretty good handle on what things are happening. Uh, the models cover pretty well the next ten years. There's a pretty good grouping of what the projections are telling us. But once you get out to one hundred, it's it's anybody's guess. It's that uncertainty that kicks in. And that's what engineers have a lot of trouble dealing with. So definitely we need these climate change scientists to help us kind of navigate how we're going to be designing um, buildings, infrastructure, or anything that's going to be outside for you know, the next 30, 40, 50, 100 years. Mm -hmm. um, so with, uh, with this uncertainty that we see, and we can only project confidently over 10 years, obviously, we'll have to keep you know, revisiting and revisiting these models to make sure that we're on track closer to the way we are. I know that there's a lot of, you know, we have all these climate change targets and obviously I'm sure that's being factored into the models. Does this also reflect um, like increased pollution? Because I remember in the 80s and 90s, big thing was acid rain, right? High increased pH, you have worse stormwater, you know, that's coming down. So then you have to clean the water a bit more these models also take those into account as well? Pollution? Yes. So it, it is the scenarios they're running, and there are a lot of inputs to these models. And that for the specifics on that, you'd probably have to ask a climate scientist. Yeah. Essentially, each scenario is a grouping of inputs and agreed upon uh, time series. And what they use, or at least in our, the, one of the more recent RCPs or the climate kind of projections, was forcings. So looking at the effect of the cumulative effect of greenhouse gases, so CO2, H2O, uh, methane, and then as well other things like the oceans emitting uh, or absorbing carbon dioxide, solar radiation, so a whole list of things that have been agreed upon based on what those future expectations are. Um, but the problem is, as you've put it, we don't have the luxury of, of coming back and revisiting a lot of this stuff. So you're building stuff now. You can't kind of build infrastructure, wait 10 years and then build infrastructure again. I mean, you can, but it's expensive. What you're putting into the ground now, so the dams you build, the pipes you build under the ground, it has to last for whatever climate change is going to be. 
And you have to design it now and build it now for whatever is going to happen. So we can talk about, you know, the expectation that climate change modeling will get better in the future, but we have to work with what we have now. And that's why uncertainty is such a big problem for us, because there is still a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen. Engineers don't know necessarily what number we build with. Um, we operate really more than anything on risk. So something apart fails uh, a car, for instance. Yeah. Um, it fails every 300,000 kilometers. You drive 30,000 kilometers a year. You expect the car to last about 10 years on average. Right. And that's how engineers operate. But the uncertainty is, I mean, in the future, maybe in a year or two, you're driving 35,000 kilometers per year. Maybe you're driving 60,000 60, kilometers per year. And suddenly that risk changes. And you essentially have to pick that future number and, and build now. You have to decide if you're going to decide that worst case, you're going to assume your car is going to, you're going to be driving the 60,000 kilometers per hour per year and, and build to that now or some median amount or try to design the current condition and hope that things work out in 2100. So it's not really, it doesn't really help us to, to narrow down what the climate change projections are in the next 10 years or so and validate those models. We have to use what we have now because we're building things now that will last uh, hundred years. I mean, you look to the stuff we have now, uh, the Hoover Dam, Jacques Cartier Bridge, uh, most cities, they were built a hundred years ago and they're still around and they're expected to be around a hundred years. So what we're building now has to be designed for climate change as we understand it now. Well, that's a good point. Like the Champlain Bridge, they only anticipated for a couple of decades and we had to rebuild it, which cost, you know, several billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and now it's expected to, to be like that for a long time. And the same with the La Fontaine Tunnel here in Montreal. It was uh, built only around for a couple of decades and Ever since I moved to Montreal, they said they're going to start work on the tunnel, and they haven't yet. You know, it's, it's, it's almost it's been in almost extra seven years, which is a little alarming. You know, um, so no, I, I I get that, and uh, to me, I never even thought about the stormwater and how that we now really resilient because, you know, this year you hear about there's less there's uh, we have a lot less rainfall, you know, so food prices are going to go how it's going to affect the average person all this climate changes your food prices are going to change it's harder to predict you know planning for it you know you just can't consult the the farmers all um almanac anymore and just say yep yeah, yep yeah, that's the way it's going to be next year and i can plan accordingly you can't so um going forward as an engineer i i take it that we have to really now rely a lot more on climate change scientists to provide us these critical, um, these critical uh, sign items. Uh, out of curiosity, is the course that you and your company teach, is that at the undergraduate level or at the master's level? It is at the master's level. So it's more geared towards permitting. There are certain, like, certain uh, sessions that deal more with climate change. So for instance, uh, the, the scientist I talked about who works at my office who does the climate change science, she actually has a, an evening or a, a, a day of the course to teach on her own. The water one that I teach definitely touches more on climate change. 
some of the other ones, maybe the groundwater, for instance, doesn't touch as much on it. So it's not focused on climate change, but I try to bring it there when I talk about it. I'm also part of a different program called Engineers in Residence. That's more for kind of middle school, high school kids, though. But again, I'm trying to bring to them some of the, the idea that climate change is affecting some of the some of the things they've got going on now, and their future is going to be different than what what the expectation is right now. Do you know if the permitting and such is being implemented, say, in Toronto, or is this going to be kind of a national thing? What what is you and your firms? Uh, what are they seeing in terms of the permitting and regulatory processes? Is this going to come at a federal level, a provincial level, or just strictly state municipal? What, so, what, what are you guys seeing? Yeah. It's hard. I know it's hard to predict. Yeah, I would say right now the permitting that I do, especially, is done more at the local level, and it's patchy. So some. Some municipalities, maybe they don't have as much money. They aren't really considering climate change. Some municipalities have a bit more in, with more resources and they've really taken it different directions depending on how much, how much they have in terms of resources. And it is really hard for regulators to choose because especially when, again, engineers deal with risk. We can say design to the storm that'll happen once every 100 years, but the uncertainty involved in what that 100 year storm is going to be in 2100 means they have to actually do a lot of work to sort of pick the number that they think is going to happen. And it's really tough for them because they have so many different priorities, like they have to balance the fact that they've got business that needs to build something, but at the same time, they have to keep people safe, have to try the best they can to understand the science. And there would there is a some moves to different levels of government to provide some of that guidance to help them make that choice. But for now, it's still very much a patchwork situation. And when we do our designs, we try to make the argument that they should use climate change in their designs. And sometimes it's easier than not. Sometimes cities have a good idea that climate change is going to affect things, and they're 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 very welcome to they're very interested in seeing having that insight from us. There is a lot of difference from town to town, from municipality to municipality, but how this is being handled. And when you get back up different levels of government, you see the same thing. So for instance, you mentioned permitting. Permitting currently doesn't take climate change into account. We're told to use the measured data that's been measured the last 100 years and just use that essentially to figure out how much percentage of flow you can take. But we know that that's going to change. We have all these permits to take water now that allows people to take water out of the ground, but we don't know if that water is going to be there in the future. Just because there's been enough water in the past doesn't mean it's always going to be the case. And that isn't being taken into account right now. And there's no move as far as I know to take that into account. So if let's say this was taken lead by let's say the National Building Code, you know, mm -hmm. that would have for Canadians anyway, the uh, would have them require it, and then it would be up to provinces to adopt it, and then that way, you would, I guess, be able to disseminate it. For example, yeah, because I know, for example, um, when I was looking at the building code for let's say 2010 to 2013, um, it drastically affected my budget because 2013 was cheaper. But because of the way the contract was worded, I had to use the 2010 code and the values were 
were much higher. So I had to, we had, my engineers had to design for a much more robust station. And, uh, you know, that all takes, unfortunately, time. And, you know, it's not clear to, clear as an engineer which, which way everything is going to go. So I'm glad yeah. to see that we are taking more of this into account because, you know, we're fortunate here in Canada, we have a lot of water. Whereas in other places, I'm sure that, you know, they, they'd be struggling to find more potable, usable water, especially when it's coming from storm drains and, and whatnot. And we're very fortunate here in Canada. So if we're starting to see these types of large scale issues, then, you know, I can't imagine what smaller places are, are seeing as well. Have you yeah. seen um, any particular areas in the world that are seeing much greater changes faster in Canada in any of your projects? I'll say no, but okay. when I say that, I'm specifically thinking of some of my northern projects because we do a lot of work up in Iqaluit. We do a lot of work. Uh, I was doing a water, a water situation or water design. Climate change is affecting the north of Canada a lot faster than most places in the world. So oh, when they're looking okay. at their water availability, it, it is a big concern for them understanding how climate change is going to affect that. So for instance, you look at water availability in the north, um, the way their water system works is that you have all this snow, it lasts eight, nine months a year, it melts in the spring, and then that's the water you have to work with. So whatever gets into your lake or your stream or your reservoir in the spring, that's gotta last you until the next year because within three months of that water getting into your reservoir, everything freezes and there's no more water coming in. So for them being able to plan almost a full year, two full years in advance and know if they have to really fill things up, if they have to watch what their water is, if they have to start instituting like water reduction strategies. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a big part of how they plan things. Wow. All right. So Northern Canada is, I guess, I guess is the first battleground. So it's yeah. for this. Everyone, this is Chris Davidson. He wrote the article, Water Resilience, the Missing Piece in Dealing with Climate Change. It is in Resilient Infrastructure. I will be adding a link to his uh, article uh, in the comments below, as well as uh, you have a, another full article uh, to potentially share. So we'll talk to Golder and see if we can share that as well. And we'll put it on the, um, the State Planet Project website as well uh, to make sure everything is, is published. and. I thank you for your time, my friend. I, I really do appreciate it. And thank you for the education. Exactly. Uh, kind of this, it's something we all take for granted water because it comes out of our taps and how mm. we're, we're potentially going to be affected by this very, very, well, we're already being affected by this, but. Yes. I was going to say, we already, are, we already are seeing the effects and it's, it's planning about what we're going to do about it essentially. Yeah. So this is Gio at the Save Planet Project. Thank you for your time, guys. Thank you to, again, Mr. Davidson for his information with regards to climate change and how we are, this is a hidden uh, issue that really hasn't come up. And now we need to really start to focus on it, not just on CO2, uh, greenhouse gases and whatnot. Uh, this is Giovanni with, this is Gio with the uh, Save Planet podcast. And I wish everyone have a great day. And uh, again, thank you to Chris Davidson. Thank you.